everybody. Um, so welcome everybody. It's very good to see such a good turnout. Um, I'm a sort of stand-in chair because Richard Sandbrook will take over the Q&A, but he's a little bit late. But I'm really pleased to welcome Justin Webb here. Justin Webb's uh, a presenter on the Today programme, which um, for those of you who um, haven't got around, who've been in Britain for a while, but haven't got around to listening to the Today programme, you should make sure you do before you leave for home, because otherwise <laughs> you'll have missed an essential part of British political culture. Uh, Justin's been a, one of the presenters on the Today programme since 2009, but he joined the BBC in 1984 and had a whole range of um, interesting jobs, including being a Brussels bureau chief um, for a while. You said just two years before you escaped from that. Um, two years was enough. <laughs> and then um, uh, head of um, editor for North America based in Washington for nine years, I think. Mm. Yeah, which is a long time. Justin's written about uh, North American politics, and he sort of presents daily uh, dealing with sort of world politics. So when we asked Justin to talk, it was shortly after the referendum, actually, and he'd written an article. He was a rare BBC presenter that had broken cover and said something about sort of BBC policy, and in this case about <laughs> impartiality, um, and was raising questions about how easy it was to be impartial or what the implications of that were in the wake of the UK referendum. So, uh, as usual, um, Justin's going to talk today, he's going to talk about 20 minutes or so, and then Richard, who has just arrived, would chair the Q&A. Um, and what Justin says in his talk will, will be on the record, but then the Q&A will be off the record. Justin. Thank you well, very much, Dave. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, I'll stand here just because, not because I want to be formal, or indeed I have no fine slides to put up here, but it probably feels as if it's easier to hear me um, if, I'm, if I'm here, at least in my, um, in my opening remarks. And then, as, as David says, we'll, we'll, take it, um, we'll take it wherever you want it to go. Um, there is a real risk in having a, a talk from a BBC person, and that is that we are so nervous about being uh, spotted by the Daily Mail um, <laughs> or other organs saying something that we shouldn't say. Um, but on the other hand, if you are going to invite a BBC person to come and talk to you, then, then you might as well hear something uh, firm from them. And I'm not going to fall, I'm going to try not to fall into the BBC trap of just saying nothing much at all, or on the one hand or on the other. Um, partly because that trap is a really serious, uh, potentially devastating one. The, the, yeah, so, so I was North America editor, as, as, as David said, a previous North America editor, uh, just to illustrate this difficulty, this BBC difficulty, the troubles that it can get you into. A previous North America editor had been rung just before Christmas by the boss of one of the big American TV stations, I think it was probably NBC, and uh, asked what he wanted for Christmas. And being the BBC man, thinking I better be sort of cautious about this, so we're really nothing at all, thank you very much. And as he was about to put his telephone down, he, he, he's, his eye rested on his sideboard where there was a small box of liqueur chocolates. So he said, well, if you must get me something, perhaps a small box of liqueur chocolates would, would be wonderful. Uh, thought no more about it. Christmas Eve came, and the, he was watching the main evening news, and it was some time ago, so the anchor would have been someone like Walter Cronkite, uh, conscience of the nation, looking into the camera and saying, we've been asking the bosses of some important foreign broadcasters based here in the United States what they want for Christmas. The boss of TF1, the French national station, said, an end to world poverty. <laughs> the boss of Deutsche Welle, the German station, said, no more war. The boss of the BBC said, a small box of the <laughs> said, 
sort of mindful of that uh, potential difficulty, uh, I'm going to try to at least say something uh, to you, and particularly possibly in the, in the off-the-record session uh, later on. The, the meta picture um, is, for me, is that politicians are not the evil bastards that um, we often suggest to ourselves and to our audiences that they are, nor are they all scheming um, to um, surreptitiously uh, infiltrate into conversations things that are damaging and sickening to democracy and undermining of it. Um, I don't seriously believe that. I don't believe that of our politics. Actually, in most respects, I don't believe it of American politics um, either. It is incredibly difficult, and I think it behoves journalists to remember, in this day and age, it is incredibly difficult to run anything actually, that has any kind of public-facing side to it, whether it's a large company um, or a country. Uh, and it's very telling to me, when Obama was elected in 2008, and I was the BBC correspondent then, and all the newspapers in that rather post-Leveson uh, uh, um, bland style that they have in, in, in America, where kind of the, the pedantic headline was, you know, Barack Obama elected president in the Washington Post. And, uh, 44th president is Obama in the New York Times, etc., etc. But the one newspaper I thought that day captured the essential ambivalence of the moment, and that was The Onion, the satirical newspaper, and their headline was, Black Man Given Nation's Worst Job. Uh, and and you know, it, is, it is genuinely difficult to do this stuff, uh, to get elected in the first place, but also once you have been elected to do the kinds of things that you feel you need to do. Now, I was talking to a European politician the other day who said, we absolutely perfectly well know uh, what to do when it comes to the various challenges facing Europe, but we just don't know how to get elected after we've done it. Uh, and there is this real um, conundrum that faces modern democratic politicians in particular, but more generally politicians around the world in, in countries at various stages of, of democratic or undemocratic existence, that how on earth in an age of social media, uh, in an age of lack of respect for authority, etc., etc., all these things that you know perfectly well going on in that age, um, how do you get things done? Uh, they are reaping, it seems to me, in America, a real whirlwind, particularly on the, in the Republican Party, of, of um, a, an effort to get things done by simply saying things to your own supporters that you know you cannot deliver. Um, and the Republican Party, for a decade or more, was promising to its own people in the United States that um, uh, they would be able to balance the books, they'd be able to pay down deficits and eventually be able to reduce America's debt, uh, and at the same time, all the things that you sort of depend on, like your social security, the, the, the American pension system, etc., etc., will sort of be able to, to carry on providing that. Um, it, it blew up spectacularly in their faces when someone came along, Donald Trump, and suddenly it became obvious that actually large numbers of Republican supporters, indeed possibly a majority of Republican supporters, never really had the foggiest notion of, of how they'd pay down the debt, didn't want it paid down, they preferred the spending side of the ledger um, to the debt side of the ledger. And it's been a real learning curve for the Republican Party, that sense of um, how is it that we have conversations with our own people that say, uh, we, we, we need, there needs to be uh, a payment for the things that we're telling you you want to do. 
uh, and it, and you 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 think of Sarah Palin. Well, you probably don't think of Sarah Palin very often, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you should because she's a wonderful program on TV. I'm not sure if you can see it in this country, but it, it, it's um, Sarah Palin's America involves uh, her life as a reality TV star now in Alaska, and, and basically her day goes. They get in the seaplane, they go somewhere, they land, they get out of the plane, they kill something, they put it in the back, they bring it home, and they eat it. Okay, she has nothing to do with the government. She has nothing to do with anyone. You look after yourself. And I, there probably are Americans here, and even as I say that, you will be, whether or not you're a supporter of Sarah Palin, you'll be standing slightly uh, 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 taller in your chair because that, you, that will be something that you relate to, that idea, that essential American idea, modern American idea, um, that, that what comes first is community and, and individual, and then society comes uh, as a result of that um, attachment to home and hearth. Um, on the other hand, Alaska is, as someone pointed out, I think it was Anne Applebaum pointed out, Alaska is the most federally funded state in the whole union uh, per capita. So it, it is an untruth, it's a myth. Um, and like many myths in various aspects of our daily lives, um, it, it, it sits alongside um, our semi-knowledge of it being untrue, but uh, it's only a semi-knowledge of it being untrue. And the difficulty for the Republicans, it seems to me, in the United States is that they got into a position where um, they had told their own people things that they knew that they, they should have been pointing out could not be long-term possible. Like, you can keep all your pensions and all your entitlements and all your health care benefits that you get through the state, and an awful lot of these things do come through the state in the United States, perhaps a surprising amount of them, um, through tax credits and the like, uh, but at the same time we can do all the things that we talk about, balancing the budgets, having small government, etc., etc. Et Somewhere along the line it was going to blow up, and it seems to me that what Trump was, was the explosion of, of, that, of that essential uh, mismatch, because Republicans had failed to tell um, a plain story to people. I remember being with John McCain in 2008, albeit this is a foreign affairs issue, but still quite an interesting one. We were out in the middle of rural Ohio, uh, and it was a town hall meeting, so it was a room not much bigger than this, very informal. Everyone's dressed in cowboy gear, including the candidate. And I was right in the middle of the room, and um, as he was handing out the microphone, and people were saying, uh, were asked to, to ask questions, and the, the questions were along the line of, how wonderful would you be, Senator, if you became president? So it wasn't too difficult, uh, and it was all going swimmingly, and, and a little old lady took the, the microphone at the front of the, the, the thing and said, I just want to ask you a question, he said, go ahead, and I, that Barack Obama, she said, uh, he would be a disaster for our country. And uh, McCain takes the microphone and says, yes, ma'am, he would be a disaster for our country, absolutely right. And she takes the microphone back, and she said, I want to say something else. And he says, go ahead. That Barack Obama, uh, he'd be a disaster for our country. He is an Arab. <laughs> and there's this sudden sort of, I mean, this is an uncontroversial thing to say in rural Ohio, I have to say, in 2008. It wasn't, it was, but, but this was going out on coast-to-coast -coast TV. And you could see McCain thinking, whoa, no, we can't have this. And, and uh, as you all know, he's got a bit of a temper. So he turned away, and then he turns back to the woman. And he, so he starts off quite well, because he says to her, no, ma'am, uh, you're wrong. Uh, Senator Obama is not an Arab. But then here's where it goes wrong. He, he, he turned away again, and he turns back to her. This is on YouTube, this, this, uh, this event. And he turns back to her, and he says, uh, no, ma'am, uh, you're wrong. Senator Obama is not an Arab. He is a family man. 
<laughs> what, is the, what is the message that you're trying to get across to your own people? And when you think more seriously about birtherism that became then a, a, a very big deal in the run-up to Trump, you could argue that Trump was actually sort of invented himself on the back of this complete nonsense. That those failures to be absolutely clear to people sowed the seeds for um, people to feel able to believe things that plainly were not true whether it's about St. Palmer's birth certificate, where he was born, or other things writ large. Into that situation comes the journalist. Uh, and that situation in America, which I have, have concentrated on there, because I think the, the, the position in America is more extreme. But for America, I think you could definitely read uh, the UK. I think you could read a lot of Western Europe. Uh, and more widely as, as well. It would be interesting for me to hear from you, actually, whether the extent to which these things really do resonate in other parts of the world. But for an impartial journalist stepping into these, this moment of crisis, um, it is desperately, desperately difficult. There was an American politician many, many years ago, a senator, who said to, to um, uh, Americans, as Americans, you are entitled to your own opinions, but you're not entitled to your own facts. And what has increasingly happened is that Americans do think that they are entitled to their own facts. Uh, and this has been a real uh, uh, difficulty for a nation that hitherto had prided itself on having genuine arguments uh, between people who accepted at least some core of truth in the middle um, that they could base those arguments on. And that very much, I think, is the risk for us here that we go down the same road. So what I wrote about in the Radio Times, a fine academic journal, I, <laughs> I thoroughly recommend to you all, um, which caused me to be uh, not only pilloried by uh, the Daily Mail, but I think as well by the Guardian. So it was a bit of a first, actually. It was a great BBC moment, because you know, both sides hated me. Um, was I, I, I wrote a piece in which I said really one central thing, and that is that we understand, we all of us understand now, that we are post-ideological, at least in, in Western Europe and, and the United States. There isn't that sort of sense, and of course in the United States there were a slightly different position that they were in anyway, but there isn't that sense that people adhere now to a political position because it was their parents' political position and it's the way they were born and it's always going to be the case. And that hugely, hugely underlined by the election we've just had in this country in which whether you, YouGov did some research, one of the big polling firms, well, in fact, the only firm that came, came out of it with any, um, with any kudos, um, actually had a, a, a graph the other day in which they showed the, the uh, display of those in every social segment, from A, Bs down to whatever it does go down to, E, can you be F? I don't know, I'm probably F. But anyway, every single social segment, those who had voted um, Conservative and other right-wing parties like UKIP on, on one side, and those who voted Labour or Lib Dem or whatever, or SNP on the other. And the split was pretty much in the middle for every segment. In other words, that great sort of split that we certainly would have had in this country until relatively recently where, as a working person, you feel there would be some who would 
vote for the other side, as it were, but you feel fundamentally that where your, your roots are. And equally, as a TOF, actually, you would also feel pretty fundamentally where your roots were. That has really gone. Uh, and we know that that is the case, and we know we're post-ideological. Um, and that is, in, in a sense, a truism. And the other truism is that as well as being um, post-ideological, we are post-truth. We have this sense that we no longer respect any authority, including the authority of learning, the experts that Michael Gove uh, was referring to and, and others have, have too, that kind of sense um, uh, that people in the know are worth, in all cases, or in most cases, listening to and learning from. That sense has also gone. So there are two truisms. I don't think anyone seriously, uh, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know with this, but what I think is interesting, what I wrote about for the Radio Times, is, is that those two things you have to layer on top of each other now, and that's the challenge facing journalists, that it is, it is post-ideological and it is post-truth, post and those two things um, are mixed up together. And in that situation, what often happens, and has certainly happened in the United States, is that you then have what they refer to in the US as culture wars, where actually you begin to be able to know where someone comes politically just from what they do with their day. Uh, and that would not have been the case, and it's been brilliantly written about in, in the US, I can't remember who most recently, but really brilliantly written about in the Atlantic and journals like that, about how it was in the 60s, the 70s, possibly even into the 80s, if someone told you, uh, I'm going out this weekend, I'm going hunting, uh, and then I'm going to come home and, and I, might, I might go to church on Sunday, uh, you would not have been able to tell uh, what party they voted for. You really genuinely would not have been able to tell. Uh, now, if someone in America tells you they're going hunting and then they're going to church, they're almost certainly a Republican. It is almost certain that they are. There will be some who aren't, perhaps in Montana, where things are a little bit uh, mixed up still. But generally speaking, it is, it is the case that you can tell how someone votes from what they do with their day. Uh, and equally on the other side, if someone says they don't believe in God um, uh, and, um, they're, they've got, and, they're, and they believe in uh, gay marriage or whatever, uh, you, can, you would not have known uh, 20, 30 years ago, and particularly on the abortion issue as well actually, you would not have known what side they voted on. Now you would absolutely be able to say with pretty much certainty they are a Democrat. And the risk for us in this country, I think, is that we go down pretty much the same route, the same uh, uh, route where culture is the dominant force in politics. And the difficulty, since we're specifically talking about journalism today, the difficulty then for journalists is how do you interrogate that? How do you challenge that? What are the tools that are available to you to go to people in that political uh, set up and to say let's have a serious conversation, a serious challenging conversation on a program like mine uh, or any other where, where you have limited amount of time but you need to get to the guts of what these people are talking about and to challenge it. And the idea, I mean during the Brexit campaign we were endlessly told the public want facts, they want facts, they want to know what's going on. This is 350 million pounds that was promised for the National Health Service if we left the European Union. Is it 350 million pounds? Is it going to come? Does it come next Tuesday? We want fa 
I mean, it's fatuous. The, the, the very request is, is, is fatuous. You cannot interrogate those things using simple facts, whether it's the Institute for Fiscal Studies or whoever else it is. You, you, you find yourself coming up against the brick wall that is that people have already made up their minds based on a whole range of views they have about the world. There was some quite interesting research done suggesting that actually if you knew how people regarded capital punishment, you knew how they were going to vote in the Brexit uh, issue. Uh, and that does, so that meant that a, a wealthy person, a wealthy educated person who approved of capital punishment would almost certainly have voted uh, um, in, in favour of leaving the European Union. Whereas a wealthy, educated person who didn't think much of capital punishment would almost certainly vote to stay. Equally, down the income scale, down the education scale, again, a view of capital punishment. So someone who's, who's poor uh, and badly educated but doesn't like capital punishment, quite likely to have voted uh, to, to remain part of the European Union. In, in those circumstances, the idea in a three-minute interview, the kind of interviews we have on today, Prager, that you can get to the nub of it, by saying, by having an argument about the 350 million pounds, hang on a second, it says here that the, the money isn't going to come, and the, you know that that doesn't that scratches the surface and possibly the wrong surface, if I can slightly mix the metaphor there, um, of of what you should be scratching. Um, uh, it is terribly, terribly difficult to find ways now of interrogating. Uh, 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 our politicians and as I say I don't necessarily think it's their fault I think in a sense it's our fault for having got ourselves into this situation particularly this, this cultural situation and, and the, the, this is where it goes to, to psychology because um, we were talking at, at lunch about Nate Silver who's written so interestingly about um, the US uh, and less interestingly about baseball, it has to be said. But if you can wade through the baseball parts of his books, um, those of you who aren't Americans, if you're Americans, you're, that's fine, you just carry on. Uh, but it does look like rounders to us. But, but anyway, but Nate, Nate Silver um, uh, writes really interestingly, in specifically in his book, The Signal and the Noise, to this issue of the extent to which the sudden maelstrom of stuff, information, shouting, claim, counterclaim, how all of that availability on, on, a, on a mobile phone now to an individual, how you could make the case, or you might have made the case before it happened, oh, wonderful, there'll be tons of streams of information. Plainly, people are going to be better informed. They're going to say, oh, goodness, I had this view, but I see on my, my <laughs> mobile that the, the complete opposite is true, and, and I shall change my mind accordingly. Uh, and that might have been the kind of model uh, that you could have come up with. Of course, actually, the truth is the opposite, partly because of the way people work psychologically. So when there is a huge, huge maelstrom of stuff that comes on you, um, your temptation as an individual is to cleave ever more closely to that bit of it that seems to back up what you initially Thought. And that, I think, is, is that's Nate Silver's kind of key point. And he makes the point about the wars of religion in Europe that came soon after the inventing of the, of, of the printing press. So, you, you, again, in a sense, I'm not sure the analogy uh, is, 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 is quite the right one. It's an interesting one, that you have this sudden availability of information, but it goes alongside, actually, a really a series of bloody wars as people try to say, no, my version of this is right and yours, and yours is wrong. And I think in a sense, you could argue, 
that he's right about that, that we have the modern version of that um, going, on, going on now. And the idea simply of filling the space with more facts actually doesn't address and challenge the kind of difficulties that we um, as, as journalists have to, have to um, uh, cope with. Uh, you'll note in my 20 minutes or so, and I'll stop speaking now so that we can go in, in whatever direction you want to go, and you'll note that I have come up with no solutions. Because <laughs> that is the wonderful thing, isn't it, about journalism? Uh, not really our job to do, and that is where the politicians have to step in. But it is, it is an area more seriously, where we should, I think, it, it behoves us and, and you and, and organizations like the Reuters Institute to begin to come up with ways in which uh, journalists can operate in these, in these new and, and extremely challenging times. So I think it's a good thing to think about these things, um, but having promised initially that I would come up with some un-BBC-like program that we should all uh, gather around. I mean, frankly, um, I'm, I'm not there yet. Though if anyone is about to be, then I shall listen very carefully. Thank you very much. <laughs>